On May 28, 2012, a 22-year-old woman went out for an afternoon jog near Kettner Lake in Westminster, Colorado. Westminster is a town just north of downtown Denver, and like many places in Colorado, it focuses on many outdoor activities. The Kettner Open Space is a 50-acre area that includes scenic trails around the lake. That afternoon was warm and it was a good day for a run. On the north side of the lake, Whitstem Elementary can be seen across the road with the lake to the south. As the young woman passed the school, she noticed a man walking past her the opposite direction. After a few minutes, she sensed that someone was behind her, and as she turned to look backward, she saw the same man that she had just passed. He had turned around and was approaching her from behind. Suddenly, he put one arm around her and pressed a red rag over her nose and mouth. The chemicals on the rag immediately caused her to be disoriented, but she stayed alert as the man dragged her into the bushes. He managed to pull her shorts down, but the woman fought to keep him from sexually assaulting her. While they struggled, she made a mental note of the man's features. She noticed that he was young, more of a boy than a man, possibly still a teenager. He had brown hair and a small, downturned mouth. She managed to throw the boy off of her and take off running, luckily able to outrun her attacker, who didn't seem to be in the best shape. She called 911 as she ran, and by the time police arrived, the boy was gone. Patrol officers kept a lookout for anyone who matched the description the jogger had given, but they had no luck identifying a suspect. It was then that the locals realized that there was a predator on the loose in the scenic town of Westminster. This is Monsters. Jessica Ridgway was born on January 23, 2002 in Colorado. She was the only child of Jeremy Bryant and Sarah Ridgway. Jeremy and Sarah split up not long after Jessica was born and it's said that the split was amicable. Jeremy moved to Independence, Missouri to live with his grandmother and saw his daughter at least once a year. Sarah lived with her mother, Christine, and her sister, Rebecca, who helped take care of Jessica. Sarah worked a 10 p.m. to 7 a.m. shift at a tech company, so she would be home during the day to care for her daughter. While she was working, Jessica would usually be sleeping, but Christine and Rebecca, who was a registered nurse, were also there in case of emergencies. In 2012, Jessica was 10 years old and in the fifth grade. She loved school and was known as an outgoing, energetic student. She was part of the junior cheerleading team and had recently signed up for the Stanley Lake Pee Wee Cheer Clinic. She always performed new cheerleading routines for her mother, grandmother, and aunt. She loved animals and had a pet dog, two fish, and two frogs. She also regularly took care of her neighbor's hairless cats when they were away. Jessica also sang, often recording herself on her computer. Jessica liked being independent and had asked for an alarm clock so she could get herself up for school. On October 5, 2012, Sarah had returned home from work at about 7.30 a.m., 15 minutes before Jessica's alarm went off. After waking up, Jessica had breakfast and watched cartoons while Sarah made her lunch. 
When Sarah noticed that it was snowing, she told her daughter to change from leggings to jeans. When the girl came back from her bedroom, she put on a black and pink jacket, picked up her backpack, and left to walk to school. Jessica normally walked about three blocks, where she would meet up with a larger group of kids who all walked together 1.3 miles or 2 kilometers to the school. After Jessica left for school, Sarah cleaned up the kitchen and went upstairs to go to sleep. She had left her phone downstairs so she didn't hear it ring at 10.11 a.m. Someone from Jessica's school had called and left a message regarding Jessica's absence that day. Sarah woke up not long before 4.30 and immediately noticed that Jessica wasn't home. She should have been home from school by then. When Sarah checked her voicemail and heard the message from the school, she began to panic. After making a few calls to friends and family, none of whom had seen her daughter, Sarah called the Westminster Police Department. It only took a few minutes for police to arrive at Sarah's house, but it took five hours from that point for the Colorado Bureau of Investigation to release an Amber Alert for Jessica. Five hours. What good is that Amber Alert? Whoever abducted a child is going to be long gone in five hours. That was on top of the eight hours that had passed since Jessica had last been seen. If she didn't make it to school, she would have been kidnapped very shortly after she left the house at 8.30 a.m. It had to have happened between her house and the three blocks down the street where she would have met up with other kids. So, the Amber Alert went out 13 hours after Jessica was kidnapped. That would be confirmed when a friend of Jessica's said she called him at 8.25 a.m. just before she left the house and asked if he was walking to school. He said he was and said he would wait for her. He said he waited until 8.40, but by then he was afraid he would be late for school, so he left. That puts the time of Jessica's abduction within the 10 minutes between 8.30 and 8.40 a.m. Fifty police officers and sheriff's deputies searched through the night. Eight hundred volunteers would join them in the search. Officers went door to door, asking if anyone saw anything suspicious that morning. The volunteers searched fields, parks, and culverts. They surveyed the surrounding area with helicopters and sent divers into nearby bodies of water. They used search dogs and thermal cameras trying to find any trace of Jessica, but they had no luck. Authorities were initially suspicious of Jessica's father, Jeremy, because he had recently filed for custody. Despite him and Sarah being on good terms, the court battle had added some tension to their relationship. When police checked his record, they found that he was on probation for second-degree domestic assault after being arrested for choking a girlfriend. FBI agents in Missouri interviewed him and confirmed that he was at work all day and he was cleared as a suspect. After two days of searching without a single clue, on October 7th, a couple in Superior, about 15 miles or 24 kilometers northwest of Westminster, were driving home just after midnight when they saw a large paper bag sitting on the corner of Andrew Drive and Alpha Court. They noticed the bag but weren't immediately suspicious enough to call the police. Later that morning, when the bag was still there, the man and a neighbor decided to investigate. Inside the paper bag was a pink backpack. Attached to the backpack was a keychain with Jessica written on it. When they opened the backpack, they found a water bottle that had the name Jessica Ridgeway on it, some folded clothes, prescription glasses, and a wooden stick. Nobody in the neighborhood recognized the name, so the man posted a message on a local online bulletin board that read, quote, Found this morning on sidewalk at Andrew Drive in Alpha Court, 
water bottle has Jessica Ridgway name on it, come and get it. It was only a few minutes before someone responded that that was the name of the missing girl in Westminster and the man called the police. Authorities swarmed the area looking for any other evidence. They knocked on doors looking for anyone who might have seen anything, but nobody had. All they knew was that the bag had been left on the sidewalk October 6th between 7 and 10 p.m. The bag was sent to the Colorado Bureau of Investigation's lab for analysis. There, they found Jessica's DNA on the backpack, but they also found a second DNA profile. When the profile was run through CODIS, the combined DNA index system, it came back with a match. Unfortunately, there was no ID with the match. It was just linked to a crime. This DNA had been recovered from a young woman who had been attacked while jogging around Kettner Lake on May 28, 2012. When investigators discovered that two registered sex offenders lived two doors down from Jessica, they immediately searched their property. They searched inside the house, all around the property, and inside a pickup truck one of them owned, but there was nothing linking the two sex offenders to Jessica's disappearance. One tip came in that said that Jessica was seen in a station wagon with Colorado plates in Maine. Authorities tracked down the vehicle, but it turned out to be a false lead. On October 10th, two people were collecting garbage in Patridge Oban space about 10 miles or 16 kilometers west of Westminster when they found a large black garbage bag. One of them tried to pick up the bag, but it was heavy. He opened the bag, but inside was another black garbage bag. When the other man cut that bag with his knife, he found a headless torso. Police were immediately called. Inside the bag was the dismembered body of a young female. Outside of the bag, various clumps of blonde hair were collected. Also, nearby were two receipts. One of them was for the purchase of the same type of garbage bags from a King Supers a few miles from Jessica's home. Police watched surveillance footage from the store, but they were never able to get a look at who purchased the bags. They would eventually confirm that the receipt was unrelated to the murder. When the body was taken to the medical examiner's office, they found a small, one-inch by one-and-a-half-inch wooden cross placed into her vagina. On the cross, someone had carved three little notches. Once the remains were positively identified to belong to Jessica, police held a press conference asking the locals to look for anything suspicious, anyone they knew who had suddenly cut their hair or changed their appearance, anyone who was acting differently than they normally did. Austin Sig was born on January 17, 1995 in Colorado to Robert and Mindy Sig. He has one younger brother, Dustin. Robert turned out to be violent and constantly in trouble with the law, so at some point the two got a divorce. Robert moved away and had little contact with his two sons, and Mindy went back to school to become a certified technician for a local eye care clinic. At 8 p.m. on October 17th, Two FBI agents knocked on the door of the SIG house and asked Mindy if they could come inside and talk to her family. Mindy had been following the Jessica Ridgeway case, and though she didn't know the girl personally, they only lived about a mile apart. She was more than happy to talk to the agents. Mindy, Austin, and Dustin all answered questions where Austin claimed to have seen a suspicious person and a suspicious car on the day Jessica went missing. When the agents left the house, they didn't feel there were any red flags raised about any of the family members. Two days later, a neighbor of the SIGs left a message on the FBI tip line and when an agent called her back, 
She told him that she was suspicious of Austin. She explained that Austin had a very public obsession with death and that he exhibited odd behavior. When the media published a picture of the cross found inside Jessica, the neighbor said she had seen Austin wearing a similar cross. With this new information, agents returned to the SIG house and asked if they could get a DNA sample from Austin. He agreed, and when they ran the DNA through CODIS, it did not match the DNA recovered from the case, the same DNA that was recovered from the Kettner Lake jogger. Authorities were back to square one, and it made sense to them since they believed they were looking for an adult. Austin didn't know at the time that the authorities believed his DNA didn't match the DNA on both Jessica and the jogger. All the police had said in a press conference was that the DNA of the two crimes matched each other. After hearing this development, Austin began to worry. He knew that authorities were closing in, and on October 23rd, he confessed what he had done to his mother. When Mindy got home from work that evening, she could tell that something was bothering her son. When she asked what was wrong, he said, quote, Mom, I'm a monster. Then he told her that he had abducted, murdered, and dismembered Jessica Ridgway. Not only had he conducted a heinous crime, but he had brought her back to their home where he strangled and dismembered her. He had cut up her body in their own bathtub using a saw he found in the garage, but also some of the remains were still in the house. He told her that he dismembered her to get rid of the evidence, but he only dumped the torso. He would maintain this later in court, but the prosecutor would assure the judge at sentencing that the only reason he dismembered her body was for sexual gratification. Mindy didn't see the remains, but she didn't have any trouble believing that Austin was telling the truth. Years earlier, she had caught him watching violent pornography and he was sent to get help. Eh, kind of. Austin was 12 years old at the time, and if you find a tween watching violent porn, sometimes referred to as torture porn or hurtcore, you need to get them into a serious counseling program. This is not what Austin's parents did, though. They sent him to a religious camp, but violent sexual fantasies and pedophilia isn't something that can be prayed away. And it wasn't. When Austin returned from his short time at the retreat, he was no different. From there, his porn-viewing habits only escalated. He began seeking out more and more violent videos. Before long, he was watching snuff films and videos depicting human dismemberment. This is a list of what Austin was watching, as described by a psychiatrist at his sentencing hearing. He searched specifically related to torture. Girl tortured and raped. Girl raped after torture. Girl screams in pain. Torture. Girl tortured and raped, triple X, anime torture, cute girl tortured, raped until death, raping and killing. He also uh, had visited uh, websites related to rape and torture. These included ripperup.com, screaminqueen.com, cruelnetwork.com, hogtide.com, and bestscore.com. Mindy could have tried to hide this information and keep her son from being arrested, but she didn't. She did the right thing and called the police to have her son turn himself in. The first operator she talked to didn't really take her seriously, though. That operator thought it was a prank, but when a second operator got on the line, she asked for more details and sent officers to the SIG home. Hi, um, I need you to come to my house, um... My son wants to turn himself in for the Jessica Ridgeway murder. Okay, what's the address? 
10622 West 102nd Avenue. And what's going on there? Ma'am, not hear me. He just confessed to killing her. I know. I, w I want you to tell me what's going on. Can you tell me exactly what he said? That he did it, and he gave me details, and her remains are in my house. Did you see them? No. Is he there with you? Yes. Is he cooperative? Yes. How old is your son? 17. What is your son's name? Austin Sake. Can you spell it? You said Austin? Mm-hmm. Okay, and spell his last name for me. As it is in Sam, I-G-G. Now, there are many times that a 911 operator does a terrible job. The Josh Powell case is a shining example of negligence on the part of a 911 operator. But sometimes I hear people complain that the operator should stop asking questions and send help. I like to point out that generally, an operator does send help right away and then continues to ask questions. The more details they get, the better it is for the police. During this call, when the operator asks to speak to Austin, he got on the phone and was immediately frustrated that she was asking questions. I, I, I don't exactly get why you're asking these questions. I murdered Jessica Richway. Okay. There is, I have proof that I did it. I, there is no other question. You just have to send a squad car something down here, and right. I will answer all the questions that you want to ask okay. or anyone wants to ask of me as soon as you just you got to get down here. Okay. Austin, I have a police officer that's going to come over to your house, okay? Can you tell me what part of the house that her remains are in? Underneath the house and across this. Okay. Did you know Jessica before this? No, I did not. Obviously, the first operator didn't send an officer right away, so it's understandable for him to assume she didn't either. By this point, she had dispatched officers and now she was doing everything she could to gather as much detail as possible. Details that could be very important to the officers who soon would be on the scene, asking if he had any weapons or even if there were any animals in the house. In a case like this, these details help ensure the safety of the officers who are going to encounter a person who has claimed to have already committed murder. If there's a suspect on the loose, the operator can get as many identifying details as possible to help apprehend that person. When the operator asked Austin if he had a criminal record, he revealed that he was the one who had attacked the jogger. The only other thing that I have done that before this was the Kentner Lake incident where the woman got attacked, that was me as well. And other than that, the only criminal history I have is a speeding ticket. Okay. Then Mindy gets impatient and takes the phone back. Can you can you please hurry up? I need to call his dad. Well, on my phone. Ma'am, um, I understand you want to call your I understand you want to call your husband and I'm sorry, but I would like to keep you guys on the phone just until the officers get a little bit closer. Well, how far are they? Um, they're going to be there in just a few minutes. Okay, they're they're gonna be there in just a few minutes. Can you? Can I get? Right, a, yeah, we can stay on the line, but do you have to keep asking questions? Okay, no, I don't. I don't.
I understand that she wanted to call his father, but she seems almost incredulous that the call is taking so long. I mean, Austin isn't ordering a fucking pizza. He's confessing to kidnapping, killing, and dismembering a ten-year-old. Of course, this would be an unimaginable situation for any parent, so her thought process is likely not working like it normally would. The gravity of the situation eventually hits her and you can hear her breakdown over the phone. The operator continued asking questions to try to keep Mindy calm and when they asked what Austin was going to school for, Mindy chuckled and said he was studying to be a mortician. Officers arrived at the home and took Austin into custody. He didn't resist or show any emotion. Mindy then gave them permission to search the property. The officers on scene were still not entirely convinced that Austin was the killer. They still felt like the crime was committed by an adult and Austin hadn't offered any evidence that proved his guilt. That was until he described the crime. As soon as he told them all the details, they knew he was guilty. Then they went into the crawl space where they found multiple black garbage bags that contained Jessica's head, arms, and legs. During his interrogation at the police station, Austin admitted that he was driving around on October 5th for the sole purpose of finding someone to abduct. He also said as soon as he got Jessica into his vehicle, he knew she was dead. His defense tried to claim that his actions were completely spontaneous. A premeditated murder would come with a more severe punishment than if it was just a spur-of-the-moment lapse in impulse control. A psychiatrist testified at his sentencing hearing about the evidence that proved it was pre-planned. Based on your evaluation of the case, when did he form a plan to kill Jessica? Well, he said himself that the moment she was in the car, he knew she was dead. Do you believe that, or is there evidence that he formed a plan to kill before he kidnapped her? Oh, I'm sure he, he planned it before he kidnapped her. Uh, before I kidnapped her because when he was asked by police what were you planning on doing to the jogger he said the same thing that I did to Jessica so he actually had planned to kill the jogger and had even talked about a place that he thought where he could dispose the body in the mountains so when he went into this offense he has admitted that he had the same plan and you're talking about the the point in the interview when he's talking about the Kettner jogger where he says that uh, he would dispose of the body in the mountains in some sulfur pits that he learned about? Yes, sir. He had already thought about body disposal and he had not even gotten her in a car. He had planned the whole thing in advance. She went on to describe even more details about Austin's planning. Did you see evidence of planning in, in this case? Considerable evidence. Um, can you give us a few of the highlights of the planning? Okay. Uh, he took a forensic class. He said he was learning to kill people and get away with it. He picked a time when elementary school children were on their way to school. Um, he had ties handy to bind her hands. He tried to throw off police by leaving the backpack in one place and a, a torso in another. When the police interviewed them, he told them about a suspicious person and a suspicious car. These are, uh, these are all uh, examples of planning. He also researched chloroform on the internet. Uh, he decided when he was unsuccessful with the adult jogger that he needed a, someone with a smaller body, body type uh, and decided to go after a child. He said that he had, would have done the same thing to the jogger that he did to Jessica, indicating that he had the plan to, uh, to murder 
and dismember prior even to the attack on the on the jogger. So I, there's no sense in which you can say this was an impulsive offense. The defense also brought up medical records that maybe kind of suggested that Austin may have had a brain injury. The problem was there was absolutely no evidence that he actually did have a brain injury. In the interrogation, Austin went over every detail of the events of October 5th. He said that he was driving around, essentially hunting, when he saw Jessica walking to school. He pulled over up ahead of her, and as she walked past his vehicle, he grabbed her. Then he drove around for about a half an hour before taking her to his house. Once there, he ordered her to remove her clothes and described having her put on black shorts and a white shirt. He doesn't mention any sexual assault, but the autopsy showed evidence that Jessica had been assaulted. When presented with the evidence, he admitted that he did sexually assault her. The violent assault left her bruised and chipped one of her teeth. Then he used a zip tie to attempt to strangle her, but he said he wasn't able to get enough leverage, so he used his hands to finish. After about three minutes, he said he wasn't sure if she was dead since she was twitching, so he filled a bathtub with scalding water and pushed her head underneath. When he was sure she was dead, he not only dismembered her in the tub, but he cut her body open and removed her internal organs. He put them into containers and labeled them. Then he put a wooden cross that he had etched three little markings on into her vagina. He put the parts in garbage bags and hid them in a shed by the pool. He actually cut off one foot and one hand and cut them into pieces before flushing them down the toilet. The next night, Austin left the backpack in Superior to try to throw police off of the area where he lived. The stick that was found in the backpack was not able to be used in court, but it was believed to have been used during the sexual assault. A few days later, Austin drove the torso out to Patridge Park and moved the rest of the remains into the crawl space. Now that Austin had confessed to both the murder of Jessica and the attack on the jogger, investigators were confused as to why his DNA came back not a match. After looking into information at the lab, it was discovered that Austin's DNA hadn't actually been tested and the results were a mistake. Once they actually ran his DNA, it was a match for the DNA in both crimes. When investigators did a more thorough search of the Sig house, they found another wooden cross that matched the one found in Jessica's vagina. They found Jessica's hair, zip ties, used and unused latex gloves, and garbage bags that matched the bags used to dispose of the remains. They took two computers and three hard drives, all of which had child pornography on them. In his car, they found a ski mask, ear warmers, gloves, zip ties, and multiple knives. If Austin wasn't caught, he was clearly going to go out and commit more crimes. Austin Sig was indicted on 17 charges, four counts of murder in the first degree, two counts of second-degree kidnapping, three counts of crime of violence, one count of sexual assault of a child, and a count of kidnapping. He was also charged with three counts of crime of violence, one count of attempted second-degree kidnapping, one count of attempted first-degree murder, and one count of attempted sexual assault in the case of the Kettner Lake jogger. When Austin was charged, he would turn 18 in two and a half months, but the judge decided to try him as an adult. Austin started out pleading not guilty to the charges, but two days before his trial, he changed his plea to guilty. During his sentencing hearing, the prosecutor disputed the defense's claim that Jessica was a random, spur-of-the-moment attack. 
Austin had gone to where Jessica had been walking to school at the exact time she would be there. He parked ahead of her, but it was on the other side of the road, making it clear that Austin knew the spot where Jessica always crossed the street on her way to school. The evidence suggested that this was not the first time Austin had seen Jessica, despite this claim during his interrogation. The judge sentenced Austin Sig to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 40 years for the murder of Jessica Ridgway. He also sentenced him to another 86 years for the other crimes to be served consecutively, essentially eliminating any chance that Austin would ever have of parole. Chelsea Park, the place where Jessica was supposed to meet her friends on the morning of her disappearance, was remodeled and renamed the Jessica Ridgway Memorial Park. Jessica's favorite knock-knock jokes were etched on the rocks that surround the park. Austin Sig was excited by suffering. He was aroused by pain. He let those urges escalate until he kidnapped and murdered a 10-year-old child. He summed up his own life when he looked at his mother and said, quote, Mom, I'm a monster. Yes, Austin. Yes, you are. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can also check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our new merch at Teespring. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe.